Good afternoon. Jordana Green here, filling in for John Williams on the Playing Politics podcast. It is March 1st, Wednesday, and thank you again for joining us. You can hear this podcast on The John Williams Show, as well as the WCCO homepage, John Williams Facebook page, and the StarTribune.com slash opinion page. Joining me and John, of course, as always, is uh, John Rash and Lori Sturdivant. Hi, John. Hi, Jordana. How are you? Well, thank you. Hi, Lori. Hey, great to be with you from the basement of the Capitol. And now tell me a little bit about the basement of the Capitol. Is it fancy new digs or is it truly still a basement? Oh, it's still a basement, yeah. but boy, is it a lot better than it used to be. Uh, this is a, a spruced-up basement with carpet, new carpet on the floor, new paint on the walls. Uh, hope you'll come and see us sometime. What more could you ask for? <laughs> Wonderful. Well, new government, new capital, and lots of news to discuss today. Everybody is talking about the speech, the speech, the speech. I'd like to get initial reactions from both of you first. John, we'll start with you. Stylistically, it was dramatically different than anything President Trump has done since he was inaugurated, and especially since his inauguration speech where he spoke of American carnage. This was a much more upbeat, if not soaring, rhetorical look at America and one that appealed to unity, um, even though the beginning of his administration has been marked by anything but. It was very short on specifics except for what he had hoped the Congress would pass, but of course what he hopes for in terms of new programs, including a big boost to the military of up to $54 billion, let alone tax cuts and other programs, there was no, really no discussion about how they will be paid for. So Congress, while clearly approving of the president's tone, if not the, the tenor of the direction that he wants to go in, now comes the hard part where they're going to try to get a sense from the president of just how he anticipates that the country can pay for these promises. Lori, would you agree And anything that jumps out at you? Oh, I think so. This was a stop the bleeding speech for Donald Trump. He needed that, and I think he delivered it. The, the interesting aftermath, I think, lies with congressional Republicans. Uh, if Donald Trump were, were to continue his free fall in the polls, they would be in a position to sort of take charge on some issues and do what they see fit. But uh, a newly invigorated Trump, and I think that's what he bought himself, got himself last night, uh, that's a Trump that they have to reckon with in a more direct way. And so I think that uh, we're going to have a lot of fun covering and watching what goes on within the Republican Party in Washington. Can we talk a little bit about this new administrative agency called Voice? Is that is that the what, what we're calling it now? It's violence against or violence from immigrants. It's basically if you're an illegal immigrant or if you're any immigrant and you have committed an act of violence against an American, somehow, some way, we're going to find you and you're going to be in trouble. Now, on my show last night, we covered a little bit of this, but there's very little information on it. John, do we know anything new about it? We don't. And I think you make a great point that, you know, it has a name and it it also is reflective of campaign promises President Trump made, and he also reflected that in terms of once again talking about the border wall, although notably to me, he did not me- mention Mexico paying for it, and so we'll have to see where that dynamic goes. But in terms of this new program, I think that he feels that he has to you know, continue to hew to the issues and, and the approach that he had on the campaign trail. And I think that's one important aspect of the speech is while rhetorically there were distinct differences from Donald Trump's uh, you know, tweets as well as uh, some of the more combative press conferences that, he, that the president has had, in terms of actual policy, there wasn't 
that much dramatic difference. It was much more a, a, a shift in style as opposed to substance. You know, I was listening last night for a surprise on immigration. I really thought he had been getting such pushback on so many levels for the immigration policies that he's staked out since the inauguration that this would have been a moment to say, you know, folks, we really need to uh, wipe some of the slate clean here and start on a, a reform, start sort of from scratch on reform. That would have been a moment to do that with a national audience and, and with the backdrop that he has uh, uh, somewhat, unwittingly, I think, arranged for himself. But he didn't do that. He, he slunk away from that with the, uh, uh, other than the hints that perhaps some sort of merit-based measure might be part of, of future decisions about immigration and the admission of immigrants into this country. Uh, there's still, I think, an opportunity there for this president to uh, move ahead on some new kind of, of immigration reform. He didn't seize that opportunity last night. I think you make a compelling point, Laurie, and in particular, as is tradition with every president, he met for a luncheon with prominent news anchors from cable and news networks um, and as well as broadcast networks. And part of what was leaked out of that meeting, which happens with every president and every time that they do this annual lunch, was that he sent or he signaled uh, a softer approach on immigration, particularly for the so-called dreamers, mm -hmm. where he might have mm -hmm. some movement in terms of them. And so, Laurie, as you mentioned, to, to you know move forward with that in his address to a joint session of Congress last night may have been the policy news that was most prominent, but he you know, either is waiting to move forward on that or it was a thought that he's not going to follow through on. We'll have to see. But that particular point was not prominent in the speech last night. It was the first time I heard him talk about merit-based immigration. I hadn't heard him talk about that at all. And I understand that that doesn't address the refugees, that that's a completely different system. But do we not have merit-based immigration at all in the United States? Well, I think what he was trying to say is to perhaps have a system more like Canada's right. from that perspective. And I think he even mentioned our neighbors to the north here. But it should also be noted that on a per capita basis, Canada welcomes about more refugees than any country in the world. And you know, have opened their arms particularly to besieged Syrians trying to escape the homicidal Assad regime. So, you know, Canada is strong from both perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while President Trump did indeed look to them and, and focus this potential program or shift in immigration to in, in that direction, he didn't talk, as you mentioned, about the refugee component. Something well, the United States has a long ways to go before you'd have it would have what we would truly call a merit-based system. If Donald Trump would go in that direction, I think he'd find a lot of allies, particularly among the business community. People have in the business community complained for years that the H-1B visa, which brings in uh, workers of specific talent, that the numbers are too small, that the duration mm -hmm. of those visas is too too low, uh, that. Uh, uh, this would be an opportunity, I think, to make an alliance with the business community that wants an expansion of that program and a path to citizenship for those workers that come to the United States on that basis and decide they want to stay. Isn't that called the genius bill or the genius visa? Some people that, have yeah, referred to that as well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you particularly hear from certain sectors, Silicon Valley most mm -hmm. particularly, where they feel that they need and, and want more of these workers. And, of course, they also want to hire you know, people from this country as well. And I think that it's important to note that most companies here in America would prefer not to have to go through 
the lengthy and often expensive visa process, but if they feel that they're not getting the type of workers they need to advance their their businesses or the overall industry, that's why they're they're pressing for a little bit more movement on, on this particular path. On the topic of geniuses, the president said, and this was the first time I heard it last night about education, that education is the civil rights issue of our time. Um, Would either of you, A, agree with that? And then I also want to talk about his school choice. His big platform is school choice as well as Becky DeVos's. Uh, But is it similar to what we have here in Minnesota? Because I do believe that we have school choice here in Minnesota. Maybe tax dollars don't follow. But how is it similar to our system? Lori, you chime in first on that. Well, we do have school choice in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the line that, you, that, you, that Donald Trump used is one that people have used in Minnesota for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I think about way back to former Governor Al Quie referring to education in that sense. Uh, but Minnesota school choice is confined within the public system. Uh, a, a state money will follow a student out of a district school into a charter school uh, or into another district. Uh, there is also in Minnesota a mechanism for a low-income tax credit for low-income families that opt for private schools or home schools. But there is uh, uh, not the kind of more expansive school choice where public money follows a student into a private school. That's, that's, the, the, that's the V word. That's uh-huh. vouchers. And that's highly controversial as uh, uh, we consider the, the responsibility in Minnesota, a state constitutional responsibility of the state government to provide for a general and uniform system of public schools. That's got the highest claim on the state's education dollars. And this controversy was particularly prominent in the confirmation hearings of Betsy DeVos, who's the new education secretary, where the Senate, after approving by relatively comfortable, if not near unanimous margins for some of President Trump's cabinet appointees came down to a 50-50 vote that Vice President Pence had to come in and, mm-hmm. and break the tie there. So, you know, this is an issue that where, you know, the rhetoric when it meets the reality of, of Congress perhaps could be different here and, and one to watch in the next few months of the congressional session. Walk through that with me, though, because, and I don't know how deeply either of you have really thought about this, and I know it has to pass Congress, and God knows <laughs> that takes an act of Congress sometimes, um, but walk through that with me, because I'd like to know then how, what would happen then to our schools, what would happen maybe to the property taxes, what would happen in low-income areas, because, you know, you assume that the tax dollars follow you, let's say you wanted to go to a Catholic, or, you know, Catholic school, so the kids would take some money, it would lower their tuition, or help that tuition get paid at a private school. What is, I mean, if any, if either of you have thought about how this would play out in Minnesota, how would it differ then from the current system that we have and what would the repercussions be? Well, in, in Minnesota, uh, again, the, 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 the mechanisms that have been described for making this sort of thing possible involve enlarging the existing tax credit for low-income people to make it akin to a true voucher, money that goes to families to spend on whatever school they so would so choose. The interesting thing about the, the, the president's position on this is whether the federal government really has the, the clout and the mechanism to, to make something like this policy for the nation, given that education is primarily a state responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether this, the, the federal financial carrot and stick is big enough to, to make this, the state's toe the line on some kind of an education policy change like that, well, we've never tried it. And it, it would be a, a, an interesting legal question, constitutional question, as well as a financial question. And the fear among some, Democrats certainly, but not limited to them, is that 
if they moved forward on this system, be it a federal initiative or a state initiative, is that it may hollow out some public schools. Now, there are some on the other side who think, well, that's exactly what needs to happen because they're not performing. Others will say, well, you guarantee they won't perform if you take even more students and more funding out of them as well. So that's why this has been quite a contentious issue for many years. And, you know, both of you make a, a, a appropriate point that, you know, often the Republicans, more than any entity, have pushed for local control and not just state, but down to the community level control of the schools. So to have an initiative this significant come from the federal level is not necessarily in keeping with you know, what they have looked for from the education department and, and from the administration. But, you know, these are times where all sorts of long-held positions seem to be shifting. We saw it last night as an example and throughout the campaign on trade, where Republicans for decades were stalwart on the necessity of transnational trade packs. And, and President Trump, of course, based a whole lot of his campaign in particular in opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but in general on, you know, looking at existing trade deals, abrogating them if necessary, and being much more bilateral instead of multilateral. And that's something that's dramatically different from long-held GOP positions. Let's move on to the budget. Monday it was announced in the budget that the president would like to spend $54 billion um, to build up our defense system at the expense of other government agencies along with foreign aid. Even so, that still might not be enough money to – even if you axed out, if you got rid of the EPA and some of the other um, government agencies, it might not be enough money to equal the $54 billion. Is this realistic, John? It's not realistic in Congress, at least based on Senators Graham as well as McCain, who, who seem to think that this is not the right direction, in particular because some of the discussion – and we haven't seen the hard numbers yet, but some of the early numbers that are floating out there is a dramatic reduction for the State Department in diplomatic efforts, as an example. And, you know, among the first to pro be prominent supporters of diplomatic efforts are those in the military and those in the Pentagon realizing, you know, the nexus between dip diplomatic and, and military dynamics to project and protect U.S. interests around the world. So, you know, if this idea of spending this much money without a, a certain way to pay for it, and if part of the, the way to pay for it is to reduce our diplomatic efforts, I don't think Congress will necessarily move along with that. That being said, it certainly seems, because compromise is, is usually the way that things get, these things get done, that there will be more defense spending. Um, just how much and where it comes from remains to be seen. Lori? You know, Jordana, so many of these uh, Republican elected officials in Washington have gotten there running on a platform of fiscal, con fiscal prudence and balanced budgets. And here comes Donald Trump with something that looks for all the world to me like a budget buster, and that's just one of several things on his list that are budget busters. I I'm, I'm not sure how those fiscally prudent Republicans swallow that. And that's, again, one of the things that we're going to have a good time reporting on covering in the next few months, uh, watching this Republican Party adjust to the agenda of their new president. Particularly when one of them was sitting behind the president the whole speech and mm -hmm. Paul Ryan, you know, mm -hmm. that's been more than anything what has set him, you know, apart and, and, and accelerated his career in Congress is, is being a budget hawk and, and of, of really being concerned about this. So, you know, while certainly, especially given his camera perspective, he was quite supportive during the speech of President Trump and applauded, you know, when the others did. When they actually get into negotiations, it seems unlikely that 
that he would move along, you know, to the degree that President Trump seems to want and, and not be as concerned about the, the debt and the deficit. I was watching his facial reaction and, it, you know, just the, the zipped lips the whole time, the appropriate claps, the appropriate standing and the ovations and then sitting down. He really did toe the party line last night. He did. And also just stylistically, distinctly different from John Boehner, his, his uh, predecessor as, as Speaker of the House, who, you know, was much more jovial and often mm-hmm. had some asides that he, that he would share with Vice President Biden, you know, at, at, at times mm-hmm. and all that. So um, but it was interesting to see him up there and and. Yes. Uh, my sense is we will see him in future States of the Union speech because, uh, you know, despite a, a rocky beginning um, when he initially got the job, he does seem to be the one leader that House Republicans have, have been able to coalesce around. Let's talk about our local budget. Minnesota once again has announced a surplus, although, Lori, I think it's a little misleading because it's the surplus from last year that we just never got around to spending because we couldn't figure out how to spend it. So we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back that we have a, a surplus again, right? Well, about half of it is indeed that. The other half is is, is a genuine surplus. Oh, okay. Uh, Good gen- for us. Genuine, well, genuine to this extent. In, uh, 20, in 2002, 15 years ago, we changed the way we did forecasting around this place. We forecast inflation on the revenue side, but with just a couple of exceptions, we don't forecast it on the spending side. We just assume that everything's going to cost the same and that nobody's ever going to get a raise in <laughs> a vast swatch of government activity. Now, that's a, not a realistic assumption. No. So if you begin to think about what would be a realistic assumption, you plug in some kind of an inflation index, poof, there goes the surplus. That's kind of where, why we said in the editorial page this morning, this is really a steady-as-you-go kind of forecast. This is not so much money that we can afford at the state level a big tax cut or a big spending surge without doing something dramatic to shift money around in a way that I don't think is being proposed this year by anybody. So is this phantom money? Is this not really a surplus then? And when we get around to finally balancing our checkbook to adjust for inflation, it's all going to evaporate? You know, adjusting for inflation is not something that has to be by formula. It's not the case that every activity has to get a 3% or a 2.5% or a 2% raise. The legislature can and will say uh, some folks have to take a bit of a haircut here and and eat some inflationary costs so that somebody else can get a little more. That's what we will see that kind of adjustment. But it's not so much money that you can afford a big major change. And that's, the I think, the, the message of yesterday. We were talking a little bit ago about how uh, difficult will, it will be and how interesting it will be to watch Republicans at the national level sort of change their stripes if they go with Donald Trump on issues like uh, a balanced budget. We may be seeing some of that in, in the Minnesota legislature, where yesterday, after in response to the surplus, we saw DFL Governor Mark Dayton sounding like the fiscal hawk, the, the prudent one who is going to be so careful that we don't slide un, uh, unwittingly into the red again in this state. And Republicans talking about got to have big tax cuts. Lori, I wonder how much of that is based on his searing experience when he first came into office and the extraordinary budget uh, problems that ensued at, at that time. And of course, the, the government shutdown and, and that, that has to give him a lot of pause, I would assume. Oh, I think so. He, he's so proud of having been the governor that has brought some order back into state budgeting after about a dozen years of chronic deficits. 
and he doesn't want to be accused of letting it slide at the end of his eight years in office. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I know, Lori, that he also is down at the Mayo today. Is he getting surgery for prostate cancer? I believe today is the day, yes. Okay, so no one has heard any word on how the, uh, the, the governor is doing? No, I haven't heard anything yet today, no. Lori Sturdivant, uh, John Rash, what else do we need to discuss? I know we could talk for about seven more hours. <laughs> what else do we need to discuss today? Well, I think certainly that uh, Lori makes the point of, you know, with this this budget um, and, and the new figures that, that are available, that'll speed action on the budget. And I think that, you know, while Sunday sales dominated the headlines, oh, for sure. you know, <laughs> most Minnesotans, regardless of how they feel about that issue, would probably be near unanimous in, in discerning that there are much bigger issues for the state legislature to deal with. And in the same way, the action moves to the legislature in Washington as well. After President Trump's speech, there certainly will be budget a budget that will be proposed. But this is where the real hard work is going to begin, and it'll be interesting to see. Certainly, there will always be tension you know, between Democrats and the Trump administration, but to some degree, probably among Republicans as well as, as they push back. So I think that's where the story goes in both St. Paul and Washington. Any final thoughts, Laurie? Well, I just think for Minnesotans who value what the federal government does and value what the state government does, and that's a lot of Minnesotans based on the responses I've had over the years from readers of, of uh, the Star Tribune, uh, this is going to be a really interesting month. This, is, this month of March is going to be almost as interesting as a, a campaign month is for the political junkies. Uh, at the legislature, our deadlines are early this year because of when the Easter break falls. This next month is when all the big bills are going to get assembled. We're going to have major hearings at the Capitol. This is the, the month to engage and for folks to get their uh, messages to their elected representatives. If they have a, a, an idea they want to put across, do it now. This is going to be an exciting month for a lot of things to gel at the state Capitol and I think in Washington, too. Of course, before I let you go, I'm thinking about 10 more things in my head that I'd like to ask you about. Something we're going to discuss on the show is real ID. This is coming up again. And I, I, Lori, I'm not sure how close it is in the legislature, but this is coming up again. And I forgot where we left it last year. I thought to myself, I thought we had a looming deadline. We were going to need passports. And then all of a sudden it faded into oblivion. So what is this current status yeah, no, of real? We, we, we do have a looming deadline. Last I checked, we were one of only five, or is it now down to three states that has not, we've not uh, adhered to the, the federal requirements on this. There's pretty widespread belief now that we need to, but right this moment, we are hung up at the legislature over whether or not the same legislation should either uh, bar or allow undocumented Im- immigrants from getting state driver's licenses. It's a, a only tangentially related issue. Editorially, we've argued it's an issue that ought not be part of the Real ID move bill because that is important to Minnesotans' ability to travel without having to carry a passport, to get on an airplane without having to get a passport, uh, beginning, I believe it is January of next year. Already, Minnesotans who are attempting to get onto, say, a, a federal military installation can't use their driver's license as their identification card. They already now have to ha- carry a passport to make that possible. So we are up against this deadline, and we'll be urging legislative action quickly on this. Who's tacking on that part about illegal immigrants wanting uh, an identification card? Well, it's interesting. I think there, there's, there are guilty parties on both sides. The Republicans in the House have put in their bill language barring the uh, uh, administration, the Dayton administration, from ever attempting to uh, put uh, uh, to give driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants. Uh, the, this morning, we had a press conference by 
Republican senators accusing Dayton of insisting that the, the same that the real ID legislation provide uh, uh, driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. So there's there's action on both sides of this thing, and it, it looks to me like we could get by nicely with silence on that question oh, with this bill. Goodness. Sigh. And this is the kind of issue <laughs> that if they don't get this worked out, this is going to anger a lot of Minnesotans who may not pay close attention to other legislative issues, but this is a real fundamental issue if people cannot get on a plane particularly if this hits, as Lori just said, you know, the beginning of next year, and that's a traditional time where a lot of Minnesotans get down to Mexico, Arizona, Florida, places where, where it's warm. And if this is a big holdup, this is going to make the legislature and the governor, but depending on who they, they focus their ire on, but Minnesota politicians in general, very unpopular with a lot of voters. And they better get on the stick because it takes about six months to get a passport anyway. So we're talking if you don't have a decision and we don't file for a passport come July, we're in trouble. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, thank you again so much. This this really is where we're wrapping it up, even though the questions are swirling in my head. John Rash uh, here in the studio with me and Lori Sturdivant in the basement of the Capitol. You again can hear the Playing Politics podcast normally with John Williams on the John Williams Facebook page, the WCCO.com webpage, and the StarTribune.com slash politics page. Slash opinion. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. It's all right. See, thank thank you. God he's here to correct me, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you again for joining us, and we will see you next week on Playing Politics. Thanks.